In August 2019, which was at the time the hottest summer that had ever been recorded, Iceland held a funeral for its first glacier lost to the climate crisis. A bronze plaque was mounted on a bare rock on the barren terrain which was once covered by the Ojoku Glacier. The plaque reads, A letter to the future. This is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. August 2019, 415 parts per billion CO2. We are living through a time of multiple overlapping crises, whether that be the accelerating climate crisis, land wars in Europe threatening to tip over into nuclear disaster, and of course, the continued virological threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. I sat down with philosopher Sreczko Horvak to talk about his book, After the Apocalypse, to talk about how we as students of the past and as people invested in a livable future grapple with the lessons of this moment. Sreczko, hi, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank thanks for having me today. So your work delving into the ways in which uh, multiple different forms of the apocalypse, as it were, overlap and uh, can accelerate each other and how I guess we live with that in our, uh, in our contemporary sort of everyday lives feels increasingly relevant to this particular moment. So what is it like for you as a sort of student of the end of the world to see the prospect of nuclear conflict dovetailing with climate change and with virological threats. What is that like? Well, it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible because, you know, I've been dealing with this uh, for months and years, uh, doing research. Uh, The book was actually, the book which is called After the Apocalypse, Uh, was actually written just before the pandemic. So when the pandemic started, I had to rewrite it again. Uh, (laughs) It was published last year in English. Now it's being translated into several languages already. Uh, And I was mainly focused on three eschatological threats, as I call them. Uh, One is the pandemic. uh, The second one is the continuing climate crisis. And the third one is a possible nuclear war or the nuclear threat, uh, which is already existing. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a nuclear war. It can be another Chernobyl, another Fukushima. And of course, when this war started, Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine, it's exactly one month that the invasion started. As we could have seen, Mauripol is wiped out. Uh, there are millions of refugees from Ukraine flooding every day, and most, you know, many of them are all, already all across Europe. We witness a militarization of not only Europe but the whole world. Uh, we are on the verge of a nuclear war, and I'm not just talking uh, about the possible conflict between Russia and NATO. You've seen that what one week ago, uh, India fired a missile. 
mistakenly to Pakistan. You know, both India and Pakistan are nuclear powers. Uh, so what I would say now, since the book, book is published and, you know, I always move ahead, uh, unfortunately, the situation uh, is very dire. Uh, some of the predictions of the book came true, which I'm not that glad, to, to, to be honest. I would rather be wrong uh, than right. And uh, what we have today is, as you said at the beginning, you know, an explosive mix of different existential and eschatological threats. It's both the pandemic or future pandemics, climate crisis, uh, nuclear catastrophe, and now we have a war which is unfortunately, and I'm telling this from my own experience from the collapse of Yugoslavia, which I think might become something what George Orwell called the endless war, you know, a sort of permanent war. And what I'm claiming is that uh, besides the war, which is already horrific, especially if it turns into a uh, a planetary war into a third world war. Uh, besides that, uh, we are all living in this kind of situation that we don't really believe that this kind of mega catastrophe will happen. But at the same time, what's happening, we could have seen it in that British science fiction TV series years and years where you have a nuclear uh, nuclear attack and then they are living after the nuclear catastrophe. And very often what we can see now one month after the invasion of Ukraine is that we encounter something what in my book I call the normalization of the apocalypse. Uh, and we have it very often in war as well, the normalization of war, because I also think talking from a psychological perspective, many people, including me, probably you as well, especially journalists and people who are suffering uh, the atrocity of war, cannot take it every day, every hour, every second to just be bombarded by images of war or to be forced to flee from war. You know, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, and even when it's happening, many people don't actually believe that it's really happening and that something worse might actually happen. So that's my warning that what's happening now might unfortunately just be a small footnote to a near future mega catastrophe. I'd like to dig into that question of belief and I guess a sort of appropriate psychological states necessary for building the kind of history that will be legible in future, aka the kind of history that means there will be a history to look back on this moment. You talk about uh, this claim that the apocalypse has already happened or the end of the world has already happened as a kind of a sort of sideways form of despairing hope, if I can put it like that. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, of course, it sounds a bit counterintuitive to say that the apocalypse already happened, but it happened in the sense that, uh, first of all, the apocalypse, as I put in the book, is not the end of the world. I go back to the original etym etymological meaning in which it meant the revelation. It means a sort of unveiling of something. It's an uncovering of something. Unfortunately, what we are witnessing now is not just an apocalypse, which was in a way already revealed with the pandemic, which showed on which foundations our societies are built, you know, all those so-called essential workers, the working class who suffered the most, Elon Musk, Bezos, all those guys who became even more richer, you know, they are the real pandemic profiteers. And that was kind of revealed by this COVID apocalypse. Uh, what we are facing now is actually that we are getting, of course, much closer to a possible end of the world, which of course sounds very catastrophic. Uh, it can provoke a certain melancholy, it can provoke depression, it can provoke uh, different psychological problems, existential crisis and so on. Uh, but I think it's actually a hopeful message, uh, a hopeful message in the sense that I think that many theories which are 
being developed in the context of the Anthropocene, for instance, whether they want it or not, very often fall into the trap of a sort of narcissism. Narcissism in the sense that it's the human species which is so mighty, which might destroy the world forever. Of course, for instance, a nuclear catastrophe or nuclear waste, about which I write about in After the Apocalypse, leaves traces for thousands of years. I visited Chernobyl when it was still possible, just before the pandemic in 2019. And although you have all this narrative that the nature returned and, you know, all this kind of uh, romantic stuff, I can tell you it was a very scary place to be. And uh, especially for those people who still work at the nuclear plant, which, of course, as we know now, is occupied uh, by Putin's army. Uh, and uh, there is no future there in the exclusion zone. And uh, not to mention what is happening today with the collision between climate crisis and the nuclear age. Fukushima is the best example in which way a nuclear plant can, you know, explode or whatever the re- reactor can, 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 can melt uh, if you have uh, big scale Uh, geological events, you know, from earthquakes to hurricanes and so on. So what I'm saying is we are already living in this sort of collision. And of course, what's the good news? I mean, everything sounds pretty dark, what I'm saying. Uh, The good news is that uh, compared to the history and possible future of this planet, as mighty humans are, as much as they destroy everything around us, you know, from the nature to other living species, I think there will be a world, a planet without us uh, uh, at one certain point. Of course, whether that's good or bad, that's another question. You know, maybe uh, some future generation or species will look at our geological impact and decide whether that was good or not. Uh, But I'm claiming that we shouldn't be paralyzed by the apocalypse. I'd love to dig into that sense of um, apocalypse as revelation a little bit more. There is this sort of social calculus of uh, the way in which power is revealed through these different kinds of catastrophes, which is sort of extraordinary. Like, you know, how does a how does a flood know, in one sense, like the ways in which we have chosen to organize society, or I should say that other people uh, has chosen to organize society along lines of racial capitalism and gender hierarchy, for instance. And yet repeatedly, the ways in which these cataclysms, which are often framed as flattening human experiences, attend to the more delicate operations and mechanics of our everyday life than we might necessarily expect. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Uh, I mean, a flood, of course, doesn't really care. Or a nuclear bomb. It doesn't really care about borders, nationalities, uh, all those problems we have as humans, of course. But of course, if you are part of a certain class Uh, which is not the upper class, you will suffer more. I mean, that's what we have seen with all the catastrophes. But at the same time, you know, this kind of catastrophes can be a revelation and also a sort of spark of a possible social transformation. If you look through history uh, back, for instance, uh, just at the history of volcanoes, take the volcano uh, Lucky on Iceland, uh, which erupted a few years before the French Revolution. And as you know, when volcanoes, this kind of mega volcanoes erupt, uh, they, they, are, they are planetary events. Uh, so this uh, volcano changed the climate patterns all across Europe. It led to hunger. It led to social unrest. It showed the utter corruption of Maria Antoinette and the French elite. And actually, there are some historians who are showing that, you know, we could trace back 
the crisis of Europe, which was happening just before the French Revolution, that we could trace it back to the volcano on Iceland, in a way. Uh, of course, there are many other factors for, for a revolution, uh, but these kind of mega-catastrophes usually have a big influence, even when we don't see it. Uh, one of the best examples is... Uh, uh, Mount Tambora, another volcano in Indonesia in 1816, which is being called the year without summer. You know, we wouldn't have today the beautiful poetry of Lord Byron or some of his poems uh, like Darkness uh, if there wasn't this mega catastrophe. And at that time, people in the United States or in other parts of the world still didn't know actually uh, that a mega catastrophe happened and that a mega volcano erupted. Uh, today, the situation is, of course, different. Uh, in the sense that uh, through the media and social media especially, uh, we have a sort of live feed of mega catastrophes. I mean, that's also the reason why this word doom scrolling was invented, uh, which I think most of us suffer these days. Uh, and even if you're not scrolling, it's enough to go on the street and to be to see the doom. Uh, of course, some places in the world are still privileged, uh, so they don't see the doom or they don't want to see it. Uh, but I think it's being it's quite obvious that climate crisis is already affecting the whole planet, that the further uh, militarization, uh, the further erecting of borders, the return of nation states and nationalisms and fascism, uh, that it's turning our whole planet uh, into a dystopia. At the same time, I think these kind of moments, as previous catastrophes have shown, actually very often lead to, to deep social transformations if I can put it in today's context. Today, of course, especially in Europe, everyone is talking about the higher skyrocketing prices of gas. You know, two weeks ago, uh, the gas stations in Croatia looked like scenes from Mad Max. Uh, you know, it was like 30, 40 cars waiting to fill their gasoline because the prices would rise again next week. And instead of using this situation, instead of using it for a genuine radical green transition, for instance, turning away from gas, turning away from fossil fuels, what we have today is, again, a competition, uh, a geopolitical competition between Russia and the United States. You know, who will be the one who will sell their uh, resources, uh, uh, fossil gas, for instance, uh, to Europe? At the same time, the European Commission uh, is trying to label fossil gas and nuclear power as green, which, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really a scandal. So you can see that we have currently a mega catastrophe happening, which is a combination of endless war in Ukraine, also other wars or across the world, climate change, and we've never been closer to the nuclear threat, uh, to a nuclear catastrophe, a nuclear war. And instead of using this situation for moving away radically from these sources, uh, of energy, you can see that big money, big oil, multinational corporations are back using actually the current situation to make even more profit in the same way Amazon or Elon Musk did during the pandemic. This kind of situation in which the apocalypse and the various sort of overlapping mega catastrophes reveal and sharpen our attention to where power lies and how it's being used and it should be a moment of social transformation and yet somehow isn't does kind of invite us to think about the relative usefulness of the term anthropocene as opposed to capitalocene and you know who is reforming the planet here right yeah as you might know i'm much closer to to the term capitalocene uh why because i, I don't think that it's the humans themselves 
uh, who are destroying the planet. I think it's a certain political economic world system which is de destroying the planet. Uh, now, of course, you could say, but wasn't socialism, real existing socialism, using heavy industry, uh, also doing extractivism, aren't contemporary leftist governments, for instance, in Latin America, also using some sorts of extractivism, where lithium, for instance, is becoming the leading resource of the 21st century. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and I would say that, of course, uh, neither socialist systems succeeded to resolve this contradiction, neither the ones from the 20th century, but also not the ones of the 21st century. I think uh, uh, the issue of extractivism is a very important one. And it's, again, based on the same kind of capitalist notion of progress, progress uh, uh, which was so beautifully deconstructed by Walter Benjamin uh, in his Angelus Novus, uh, 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 that painting of Paul Klee, which he took, and then he shows that the angel of history is actually, in what we see progress, seeing an accumulation of catastrophes. And we are in this situation today. Uh, uh, but if we can see that both capitalism and socialism were uh, reliant on extractivism, uh, how can we then claim that it's capitalocene and not anthropocene? Because, you know, there is a world system which is capitalism today, which is the majority, you know, which is the prevailing system of the world. And uh, this very system, unlike socialist ideas, is based on extraction, on uh, indefinite expansion and indefinite exploitation. Uh, at least in theory, socialist systems were always criticizing these three pillars of capitalism, uh, extra extraction, expansion and exploitation. In today's moment, I think in the 21st century, where we have certain technologies, where you know we, we came to a certain level that we can use different technologies in order to avoid, for instance, fossil fuels or, or nuclear power, I think there is a possibility to go beyond the capitalocene. I think it's very dangerous uh, if we blame all humans, you know, including the working class, who is definitely not uh, responsible for this uh, unprecedented change even of the geology of the planet. Uh, you cannot also, you cannot blame the global south. You know, I think it's also a very Western perspective to say that it's the humans who are so radically changing and destroying the world. You know, that's also why I say that the apocalypse already happened uh, uh, in the sense it happened already in places in Latin America where you already had annihilation, genocide, complete erasure of languages, cultures, uh, where those people actually already survived a certain end of the world, you know. So I think we should really be careful not to fall into the trap of Eurocentrism uh, and also anthropocentrism. And I think that's what I would criticize in, in, in the idea of the Anthropocene, although I don't completely dismiss the idea, of course. I think it's a very important one. The kind of inability to meaningfully distinguish between progress and catastrophe does just make me perversely fascinated with those interviews uh, that we repeatedly get where a politician will be 
challenged on the gravity of the climate crisis and they'll say, yes, but we have to keep GDP growing up uh, as if those two things are at all comparable. And I'm so kind of curious as to the the psychological state that's going on there. Like what is the the ideological and libidinal economy that keeps that completely unhinged to me mindset, you know, feasible and legible, something that you can keep saying and people will accept it as something that at all makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I think the, the term libidinal economy is, is a beautiful one. I mean, it of course comes from French theory, but it shows that just to speak or think in terms of political economy is certainly not enough today anymore. Uh, we could have seen it with the rise of so-called populism. Uh, we could have re- seen it in the best possible way with Donald Trump, in which way he used Twitter as a kind of libidinal machine, you know, someone who didn't even have a kind of self-censorship, but was actually, sometimes it was almost as if his unconscious was talking through Twitter, you know. So this is the libidinal economy. And if you look at far-right movements today, if you look at the use of technology, social media today, uh, uh, if you look at politics today, uh, you can say that, Libidinal economies is is really important. I mean, I, I'll just give you one example f- again from from the contemporary era. On the one hand, Zelensky. On the other hand, Emmanuel Macron. You know how how now again, fashion uh, or something what Benjamin would call the aesthetization of politics became so important. You know when you saw that Macron uh, in his office had a hoodie and uh, didn't shave and resembled <laughs> Zelensky uh, uh, and then, of course, you have an audience for that. And I think that's also a problem with the current war, that you have an audience for everything. You know, you have those who won't really care about the millions of refugees, but will be entertained uh, by the political spectacle, entertained by by the aesthetization of politics. Um, Something similar happened during the Greek crisis, you know. Uh, I still remember in which way the the tie uh, of Alexis Tsipras was becoming, you know, something the Economist, Wall Street Journal, everyone was talking about because the, the former prime minister of Greece promised that he would never wear a tie until Greece is out of its debt cage and, you know, over with austerity, privatization and so on. Of course... Syriza capitulated in the end and Tsipras put a tie. Uh, at the same time, you know, just remembered Guardian, Daily Mail, all those British newspapers which were writing about the fashion style of uh, Greece ex-finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. So, you know, five, six years ago, you already had this kind of spectacle aesthetization of politics, which today uh, uh, is being even more radicalized. Don't forget that we have several elections coming in Europe uh, in the next month uh, or next months. Uh, One is France, the other one is Slovenia, Hungary, Serbia. Uh, And if you look at how the leaders who are currently in power, Macron, Yanis Jansha, Alexander Vucic, Viktor Orban, in which way they are behaving, in which way they are using also the crisis and the war in Ukraine in order to again gain uh, and to win the elections, you will see precisely what Benjamin was characterizing as the aesthetization of politics. You know, everyone is aware uh, that a war can actually be very profitable for them. You know, not just for the arms industry, not just for companies who usually come in after everything is destroyed and then privatize the industry, privatize the assets, privatize the infrastructure. 
but you can also see that uh, many politicians today are using actually the situation in order to get votes. When we talk about the aestheticization of politics and the 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 realm of the aesthetic being the way in which we analyze what's going on in politics, the thing that always jumps out to me is in UK election cycles at least every time someone is up for high office, particularly uh, the office of prime minister, there will be a point at which they are asked whether or not they would press the big red button to use nuclear power to defend the UK in case of uh, some kind of existential threat. And if they say no, they never get elected, right? And it's always strikes me as a peculiar form of like symbolic performance of loyalty to the idea of militarization, to the idea of borders, the idea of nationalism. But when we actually really consider what they're promising to do here, it's saying that like, yes, I, uh, I'm proving my uh, fit for high office because I'm willing to effectively risk wiping out all life on the planet. And I'm just curious... As someone who was born after the so-called end of history, how that comes across for someone who's who's lived under, I guess, a more pronounced and real kind of nuclear threat. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that that old yet. <laughs> uh, getting older every day, but also getting younger every day in a way. Of course, uh, uh, is uh, you know, I was three years old when. Chernobyl happened. I was at that time a refugee of a political refugee from socialist Yugoslavia living in Germany. And I remember, I mean, I was a kid, of course, but I remember that suddenly all the public parks were closed, that you couldn't go to the Schwimmbad and, you know, to swimming anymore. Uh, we watched on television all those politicians saying that the cloud will not pass through the border of France. You know, they were literally saying that, you know, the cloud stopped at the French border. Don't worry. What? Yes, literally, you can look it up at the internet. Uh, and I was later, because I was a kid, of course, I was three years, three years old. But then later I was watching all the news from German TV mainly. And it's, you know, there was a certain deja vu. I watched during the pandemic when I was working on the book uh, after the apocalypse. Uh, and it was a certain deja vu in the sense that uh, uh, the beginning of the pandemic had also all those sorts of reactions. You know, first it's it's a sort of denial. You know, it's not really happening. It's not really happening. Then you accept it, and then it's like, okay, it's happening, but it won't pass the border. Then it's it passed the border, uh, but we still have to continue somehow. So you have again a normalization of this threat. But I wouldn't say that you know the nuclear threat and Chernobyl was the defining moment of my life. Uh, I would rather say it was uh, uh, the collapse of socialist Yugoslavia and the brutal war, which took years. In this situation, you know, today, uh, of course, the difference is that uh, you have nuclear powers uh, who are in war. In Yugoslavia, luckily, you didn't have any nuclear powers. And that you have nuclear powers uh, which are, in a way, actually normalizing a possible nuclear catastrophe. You know, it was enough a few days ago to read the New York Times, uh, which is saying, something I'm now paraphrasing, don't worry about a big nuclear catastrophe. Uh, what Putin might do is a small nuclear war. Relax. Just a little know. one. Just yeah, yeah. So just a little one as if there is a difference between a big one and a small one, you know. I mean, if you look at the effects of just of the Chernobyl catastrophe, which wasn't a nuclear war, you know, even today, 
in in the region of Bavaria, Bavaria in in Germany, where I lived, uh, uh, they found radioactive soil mushrooms, which still contain radioactivity because one big cloud from Chernobyl actually moved to that part of Europe. And then through the rain, you had radioactivity coming into the soil. And 20, you know, how many years later, decades later, you still have the effects of it. Uh, Fukushima is another place. Uh, uh, Marshall Islands is the most scariest place in the world, if you would ask me, because on the one hand, if you look at the postcards, at the images, at, at the beautiful blue, green colors, the islands, the lagunas, the atolls and everything, uh, you might think it's paradise on earth. Uh, but what did humans or our governments do, especially the government of, of the United States? They chosen the one place on planet earth, which really looks like paradise, although there are many more, and they nuked it to hell. You know, it's the most nuked place uh, in this part of the universe. Uh, the because the nuclear testing. Because of the nuclear testings, which I think is a very important topic, uh, because many people actually uh, live in this kind of very linear conception of history, which of course is very often uh, a product of ideology, like in the sense that after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Second World War ended, and now we, we all lived happily ever after. Uh, but what actually started immediately after Hiroshima and Nagasaki is continuous nuclear testings, and not just by the United States, it was also the French, it was the, the Soviets, it was many of them. And what happened on Marshall Islands is that they nuked the place so much that it became the perfect example and the scariest example of the collision between the nuclear age and climate crisis, in the sense that the sea levels are rising, Marshall Islands might disappear below the, the, the ocean. And at the same time, all this nuclear waste, which wasn't removed by the United States when they left uh, the Marshall Islands, uh, is already becoming part of the ocean. Uh, and something similar is happening in Fukushima, where the Japanese government decided to dump uh, the nuclear waste into the ocean. Uh, and, you know, this brings us actually even to sort of to a sort of metaphysical realm, you know, what kind of being is being created when you have this sort of collision. Uh, and what I found is that it's probably still the best to read Ballard or science fiction who were actually dealing with this. Uh, but what also helped me is one of the greatest philosophers of technology of the for the 21st century, I would say, but who died uh, in the 20th century, Günther Anders, uh, a German philosopher who was at one time in a relationship with Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, then they fled Hitler, uh, he ended up in the United States, and precisely Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for him, uh, was the turning moment in human history where there was no back anymore, because as Günther Anders says, we cannot unlearn what we know, we cannot unlearn the nuclear power which we have, and as soon as you have nuclear power, even if it's so-called peaceful nuclear power, you can have a nuclear catastrophe as well. Because for Gunther Anders, and also for me, there is no difference between peaceful nuclear power and uh, which you use in warfare. I think Chernobyl, Fukushima uh, are the best examples. And if you have a situation of war where you know you have nuclear plants which are being occupied, no one knows what can happen. You know, I'm not trying to be catastrophic. I'm just saying that we really reached a certain moment in history after the end of the end of history uh, where... All these catastrophes, similar to that painting and Angelus Novus by Benjamin, are now accumulating and coming to a sort of threshold, which if we passed, and maybe we passed it already, then there is no 
turning back anymore. An even worse example is the Bikini Atoll. Bikini Atoll, which was also heavily uh, used for nuclear testings. And if you would ask anyone on the streets, uh, even your friends, university people, whoever, just tell me your first association when you hear the word bikini. I guess in 90% of the cases, people would say it's a swimming suit, you know. And it's not by coincidence. I write about it in the book, you know. A French designer actually used the word bikini uh, because at the same time, the nuclear tests were happening on Bikini Atoll. And he said that his swimming suit would be like an atomic explosion. And even today, we use the word bikini and we buy bikinis. So what I'm saying is, you know, besides the real war, besides the real war, which is happening in a kind of physicality, materiality, what is happening is also a war in the semiosphere. Uh, uh, semiosphere in the sense of semiotics, in the sense of science, in the sense of what we can see, especially today in the 21st century, which was accelerated with the pandemic even further, that most of our human relations and our understanding of the world actually relies on signs, on images, on uh, something which is now becoming a live feed, you know, history in real time. And uh, what you have in this kind of situation, of course, is an even bigger possibility of manufacturing consent uh, in the sense that by winning uh, the so-called cultural war or whatever, however we call it, but I would call by winning the war in semiosphere, in the semiosphere, you can also win the war in, in the materiality. And you can see, of course, that the fight for meaning, the fight for narratives is the most important fight today. In this kind of situation where you have black and white narratives, what is really important is to talk about meaning, to try to deconstruct the prevailing ideologies, the prevailing narratives, but also to provide new meaning and to create new narratives. You know, what I see what is missing today is precisely a creation of a new anti-war, anti-nuclear climate action narrative, uh, which would be a combination of all existing social movements, uh, uh, which would come together and uh, uh, by this force try, try to enact a sort of planetary change, uh, which is necessarily if we want to get out of this vicious circle of of war, you know, whether it's the war in 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 materiality or the war in the semiosphere. I'd like to um, bring us back a little bit to um, some of the intellectual tools that you use in After the Apocalypse, because um, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you mean by the normalization of the apocalypse and moreover the marketization of the apocalypse, and I guess how power and specific industries cash in on a sense of doom. Yeah, I mean, both the normalization of the apocalypse and the commodification of the apocalypse are connected, of course. Uh, what I was researching, for instance, was uh, dark, so-called dark tourism mm -hmm. or post-apocalyptic tourism, which I trace back to Pompeii, actually. Uh, you know, the city in Italy, which was destroyed by a volcano, but it was actually also preserved, which is a sort of nice contradiction uh, by the mega catastrophe. You know, if there wasn't the volcano and the catastrophe, we wouldn't have these kinds of preserved artifacts, architecture, urbanism, even bodies, as we know, you know, of uh, animals or humans, uh, which of course then can help us to understand history and perhaps prevent such a future catastrophe, which I'm not so convinced in. But anyhow, during the during uh, uh, a few centuries ago, you first had this first dark tourism to Pompeii, uh, which was of course 
a privilege at that time for you know the the, the, the higher classes who could travel to Pompeii with candles during the night, looking at it and so on. Uh, and then later you had mass tourism, uh, not just to Pompeii but also to other places. And what the commodification of the apocalypse means, I could have seen best when I visited Chernobyl. I mean, it's not just Chernobyl; it's Pripyat, it's other villages, it's it's a whole exclusion zone. It's much bigger than Chernobyl, and there you can see that you know that was two or three years ago. I don't, we cannot even imagine how it looks today. I just heard that there are wildfires around the exclusion zone again. I mean, it's occupied as we know. Uh, but two years ago, when you had this HBO series Chernobyl, uh, there was such an influx of tourists to Chernobyl. I was part of them because I was interested precisely in this kind of phenomenon that you had, you know, souvenirs, T-shirts saying, for instance, enjoy Chernobyl now die later. There was all this marketing and commodification of the apocalypse, uh, a vodka produced in the exclusion zone. And you have it always. I mean, recently when, you know, this volcano on La Palma on the Canary Islands was erupting for a few months at the end of last year, what did people do for All Saints holiday? Thousands of them went to the island, booked flight tickets, booked boat tickets, and went there in order to to make photos of the erupting volcano. So there is something which is very interesting uh, in humans, uh, where there is a certain fascination with the, with, with the catastrophe, you know. And I think it goes back thousands of years, you know. First cave paintings might have been uh, also a result of, uh, of certain catastrophes, for instance. Uh, so my problem is that I'm not so sure that each time this catastrophe ends up in, in something what in philosophy is called the sublime, you know, that you can use it also for art or whatever. I mean, what we can see. But I'm more and more inclined towards the Günther Anders position of the supraliminal and the impossibility, actually, to understand uh, the current planetary threat. I mean, we, we have traces of it. Uh, different scientists are focused on different aspects of the current crisis. Uh, different social movements are also focused on different aspects of this current crisis, whether it's the climate crisis or the war uh, or the nuclear threat. But I think it's it's growing so big that even those who are in control of certain processes of this crisis don't actually have control. We might very easily end up in a kind of Dr. Strangelove scenario, something where an accident might trigger a kind of mega catastrophe. What is worrying to me is in which way consumerism, you know, the consumerist society and capitalism is actually profiting from the current crisis. Uh, on the one hand, if you just look at the pandemic profiteers, in which way big tech Amazon, for instance, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, making up or Facebook at that time as well. Now it's not Facebook anymore. In which way they, they, they were making profit out of transport, out of uh, uh, the very unique position they have built through monopoly capitalism. You know, you have something similar today in which way big oil, the arms industry is again making profit out of it. So you you. That's the commodification of the apocalypse, uh, uh, you know, that actually they need a catastrophe to accumulate more profit. And at the same time, what's happening is that through Hollywood, through the semiosphere, uh, we are bombarded by this kind of aesthetization of, of the catastrophe, which in a way pervertly many people even enjoy or they are becoming addicted to it as much psychological harm it leaves. It seems like the engines of capitalist 
culture production have lost this sense of utopian possibility, right, that we saw particularly in the early to mid parts of the 20th century to think about, you know, flying cars, everyone has their own robot butler, et cetera, et cetera. Like capitalist time, in order to institute itself, it had to displace the idea of a Christian rapture, the this sort of guaranteed end of the world in a religious eschatology sense. And now it has none of its own salvations available. So it's sort of not surprising that this gets drafted in as a replacement. Well, I would say, I mean, they have a sort of leading ideology, which is, of course, the greenwashing, which is happening now. I mean, you just mentioned flying cars, but if you look at the utopia of capitalism during the last 100 years, it was always the the bloody car, you know? I mean, I love driving the car because Mm -hmm. I just recently got a driving license, which is quite funny. (laughs) So I love driving the car, but at the same time, I'm pretty aware that the car as such is part of the problem. Uh, For instance, I mean, to simplify it, you know, uh, they're trying to convince us nowadays that it's enough to buy an electric car and you will contribute to saving the planet, you know, uh, and you will feel better. And now, of course, you have an incentive because gasoline prices are pretty high. So electricity is still cheaper. How long it will remain cheaper, who knows? Uh, But the point is that they are trying to convince us that the solution for our current planetary climate crisis is to just simply switch from fossil fuel cars to electric cars. So I would say this is this kind of ideology of capitalism. You know, they will sell you sell you the same shit, uh, but convince you that this shit will save us this time. You know, I'm afraid it won't. Yeah, the the, uh, the idea of the genius billionaire inventor uh, innovator is is actually a really useful framework in some ways of thinking through how actually what we're just doing is on the one hand market capture and making sure that there's nowhere to build a train or like a a cheap bus system because you know you own all the transport links you own all the land etc etc but also as a way of uh, reinstituting uh, who has the power to innovate you know what kind of political dimensions the possible salvation of our planet will have exactly i think also what you mentioned the the figure of the big genius you know i think that's that's part of the contemporary ideology, but it, it's, it was always part of the capitalist ideology, you know, uh, also the term American dream, you know, as long as you have the capabilities, you can accomplish anything you want. And it's interesting when they ask Elon Musk, you know, uh, whom does he prefer more, Thomas Edison or Nikola Tesla? Of course, his answer was Thomas Edison. And we know very well who Thomas Edison was. Thomas Edison was a sort of, you know, CEO manager who actually privatized the inventions of Nikola Tesla. And Elon Musk explicitly says that he prefers Thomas Edison, you know. Uh, uh, And if we have chosen in the 20th century uh, and before, you know, the path of Nikola Tesla, who was advocating free energy for everyone and these kind of inventions, uh, we wouldn't have been in this situation today. But what you can see with all this, you know, the, the concept of the big genius is to actually privatize something what Karl Marx called in his fragments on, of, on the machines, the general intellect. And what is the general intellect? The general intellect, it is all our emotions. It is every time we Google something. It is every time we leave a trace on the internet. Uh, it is our collective coming together and creating something out of being together and 
different minds, different hearts, creating something together. That's the general intellect, to put it like that. And throughout the history of capitalism, you have the privatization of the general intellect, except, you know, you had real existing socialist systems uh, in which at least they experimented with different forms of how to not privatize the general intellect, for instance, self-management uh, in ex-Yugoslavia, socialist Yugoslavia, which, which had its problems, it had its contradictions. But the basic idea was that the surplus value wasn't going to the managers, you know, and CEOs, to Elon Musk or Thomas Edison, but it was the workers themselves uh, who decide on their future and the future of their company. I mean, that failed, unfortunately, and it and we could actually learn a lot from learning from the reasons of this failure, but it still remains a very important concept, I think, especially for the 21st century, where we have to build uh, more self-management, more autonomy. I mean, just look at the energy crisis in Europe. I mean, of course, it's a product of uh, Europe being reliant on, on, on either Russia or the United States or Qatar now. I mean, Germany just signed or is signing a contract with Qatar, you know, for import of gas. Instead of that, I think Europe should really be going, and not just Europe, but other other continents and other countries as well, into building more autonomy, if you want to put it like that. The way in which you know these billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are you know, heavily invested in the idea of cataclysm as a way of reformulating their right to profit, because like hey, I, I know that yes we may be exposing people and making Amazon workers uh, pee in bottles and destroying the planet, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this climate crisis. So we need to have enough money to innovate, to build electric cars, to build spaceships, to get humanity off the planet, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it does remind me of, of what you talk about in the book in terms of fascist theory of ruins because or, or the ruin value uh, of different kinds of architecture and public projects, because it's there, there is no value to the people who are building them. There's no value to the people who are inhabiting them. What will uh, they are only recognisable as beautiful or socially valuable when you look back at them from the point of view of a cataclysm that has already happened. Yeah, you put it beautifully, and I'm really glad that you made this bridge between the theory of ruins and our contemporary Silicon Valley uh, businessmen, you know, the richest people in the world. Uh, I mean, originally, the ruined theory or the theory of ruins was coined by, by Hitler's architect, Albert Speer, uh, who uh, actually built many of, I would say, magnificent infrastructures, architecture in Berlin, Nuremberg, and so on. And he coined this theory, which Hitler quite liked. The collaborators of Hitler didn't like it because, because it implied that there might be an end of the Third Reich. And of <laughs> course, I mean, no one among them liked that idea because like all war criminals, they wanted to win and to turn everything else into ruins. Uh, and then at that moment, Albert Speer, the architect comes and says something like, I'm simplifying now, uh, we have to build in a way which will, in thousand years or whatever, uh, be similar to what we are finding now from the ancient Greek or Roman 
ruins. I mean, it's not just Hitler. It, Mussolini was, uh, of course, also very inspired by Roman uh, ruins, and he was thinking that he was rebuilding a sort of Roman Empire, you know. And what was impo- important for them is how in 1,000 years someone will look back at them and say, wow, what great dicks you had. I'm sorry. I mean, in the sense... <laughs> no, I know what you mean. <laughs> just, just, just look at Bezos or Elon Musk today. I mean, all this kind of phallic, uh, phallic uh, uh, symbolism which you have in their rockets, and actually they are really counting on this kind of theory of ruin, you know? It doesn't matter if the world will just go to hell, I will be on Mars, and, you know, or on planet Earth, uh, you will have results of my genius and everything I have built, and now we will have these big constructions without anyone living on the on planet Earth. I think, you know, very often it comes back to basic psychoanalysis, you know, to narcissism, to egoism, to having problems in your childhood, and so on. I mean, very often, especially when you look at our contemporary Silicon Valley quasi-prophets. I'm interested in this idea of... Uh what's a possible humanity or, you know, an alien visiting the planet in 10,000 years, however you want to put it, might look back on our current moment and discover like what they might find. Because you talk about uh, the uh, (laughs) experiments and investments, if you like, in developing semiotic technologies that might outlast humanity entirely in order to warn people in the future about the kind of disasters that we're laying the tracks for right now. Yeah, I think particularly interesting was this human interference task force, which was created, I think, somewhere in the 80s. And they they were inviting, you know, a combination of anthropologists, sociologists, philosophers, nuclear scientists, architects, and so on, in order to construct the best possible message to a future and to warn that uh, radioactive nuclear waste was, you know, buried deep under the soil. So in order to, that's why it was called Human Interference Task Force, they wanted to prevent any sort of interference. Then you come to very interesting philosophical questions, you know. If we know that radioactivity can last for thousands of years, for instance, and that, you know, what we created will have effects thousands of years in the future, how do you communicate to someone in the future, you know? To whom do you communicate? Is it a human? Is it an alien? Is it another species? How do you warn them? And it's interesting that uh, among the winning proposals of this human interference task task force, uh, everything was actually getting back to art. Uh, I mean, in the sense, if you understand architecture, I understand architecture as art, Uh, also narratives, uh, storytelling. Uh, uh, And they realized uh, that... Maybe the only possible way to communicate to such a distant future, unknown future, really completely unknown future, and to someone who is completely unknown, and maybe to no one, uh, is through, on the one hand, storytelling. Uh, I mean, that's also, if you would look at the big apps and the mythologies uh, of uh, the, of big civilizations in history, you will say that, you know, you can trace back certain mythologies for thousands of years. Uh, So the idea was that also you could construct something similar which would go into the future and through a sort of new narrative mythology would create a warning for the future. Uh, uh, On the other hand, you had also winning proposals which were architecture, uh, which I find very interesting that, you know, if you would look from space or from above at a certain infrastructure, you would get a warning that below 
there is something dangerous. Uh, there were also very funny examples, right? Radioactive cats, uh, which would glow in, in the dark and this kind of stuff. Uh, but I think we need this kind of speculative science fiction think- thinking today, you know, especially today in this kind of situation. And we have to have this long durée, this long-term perspective in mind. It's very challenging in terms of how one lives with that kind of grief or, or melancholy, as you put it in the book, in terms of mourning for a future that is no longer available to us, but also having that sort of, again, slightly uh, sideways or perverse hope that is involved in Mm. thinking about how humans will interpret nuclear waste in 10,000 years' time because it relies on the assumption that there will be humans around in 10,000 years' time. Yeah, I think Gunther Anders had this beautiful um, phrase and story about Noah, you know, the famous biblical story, which is which exists in many other cult- cultures as, as well, you know, uh, the, the mythology about the big flood and the possible uh, way out of the flood. And, you know, Noah co- who constructed a ship to save all the animals and, and, and so on. I mean, which is a story which as children we were hearing already. Uh, and it also shows the importance of narratives, the importance of mythologies. And uh, what Günther Anders did in his short story about Noah, which I think is untranslated into English still, and many many of the beautiful, important works by Günther Anders are still not translated into English, uh, he imagines Noah as someone who is mourning the future, you know, uh, uh, and he describes as what what did Noah do in Günther Anders' story. Noah came to the square, to the public square, and he was in a cloth and he had ashes on his head, uh, which was at that time, ju- uh, according to the tradition, only possible allowed to those uh, who were mourning the death of their close relatives, for instance. And Noah came like that, you know, he came as a sort of, did a public performance and everyone who gathered there was really surprised, what the fuck is happening you didn't lose anyone, no one died why are you doing this, you know, you are doing a tank verbot, you are breaking a taboo or whatever and Noah said uh, I'm mourning uh, and I'm mourning uh, uh, because all of you died and then of course everyone was surprised and Noah went a step further and they said not only you died but also your children died and Günther Anders' main point was that we have to mourn today uh, those who will die tomorrow and that only this way but also the planet for instance not just people you know in that way of mourning already a sort of anticipatory mourning of something which is supposed to happen or or most probably will happen, in that way we might be creating a kind of utopian space of confronting ourselves first with a catastrophe instead of denying it or commodifying it, as as, as it is the case today, and perhaps that way we can create a way out. Uh, And the way out, I think, is of course the most complicated question of all, uh, but I think it consists in a kind of combination dialectics between building a planetary movement, which would be transnational. Uh, And I mean, this movement already exists in different ways, but it's not that well organized, uh, which would be anti-nationalist, anti-nuclear, and which which would combine the power of millions who are involved in the climate action already today, 
But at the same time, I think what is also important is to build on the local level and to build something what I call autonomy uh, or what Michel Foucault, for instance, would call a heterotopia, uh, you know, in the sense that you can build coexisting spaces in the existing dystopia so that perhaps instead of just dreaming about a utopia or building a utopia, we can already and we must start building today the kind of society we want to see tomorrow. Uh, uh, and I think this is this is very important and to combine the international, the historic, the future, uh, and the local, and perhaps that way we might create a future, which is worth living unlike the, 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 the future we have in front of us. Well, we better get going then. It sounds like that might be all the time we have. Exactly. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Shretchka. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, and yeah, well... In the end, everything will be okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.